1: The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth.
2: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. For new people, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. I'm very pleased to have as our guest speaker today, Hosan Allen-Sanaki, who will be talking about what does liberation look like. I'm looking forward to hearing that talk. Uh, and I might well say that Alan needs no introduction at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Uh, back in the old days when we had a, our storefront temple on Irving Park Road, Alan came many times and he has come since. We've become a, an online Sangha. Um, but I do want to give an introduction to Alan today. Uh, so um, Alan, uh, Hosan Alan Sanoke is now the abbot of Berkeley Zen Center. His teacher, uh, the wonderful sojourn Mel Weitzman Roshi, passed away at the end of the year, and Alan did the mountain seat ceremony and ascended the mountain seat and became the abbot of Berkeley Zen Center at the end of January. Um, the Berkeley Zen Center is one of the first American Zen Centers, and I would say also one of still one of the most influential. Um, so... Um, Alan's position as Abbott of Berkeley Zen Center. Uh, I'm very honored to have him uh, speaking here. Uh, Alan and I go way back, so I'm going to give a little bit of a personal introduction. Uh, back in 1968, long time ago, uh, Alan and I were um, arrested together with 700 friends at the Columbia University protests in New York against institutional racism and against the Vietnam War. Later that year, Alan and I got to know each other better when uh, he was part of a band that rehearsed in my apartment for the next, uh, over the next year. Um, that band moved up to Woodstock, New York, uh, a while before the so-called Woodstock Festival, and I visited Alan and that band sometimes. Uh, I think the next time I encountered Alan was... Um, more in the Zen context, um, which we didn't have back then. Um, uh, I was in nineteen summer of 1985. I was the head Dōan on at Tassahara, and I saw listed on the list of guests uh, of, of uh, guest students who were coming, Alan Sanaki. I knew there couldn't be any other Alan Sinaki. He didn't know I was there anyway. We, we uh, reconnected then and have been... Uh, Working together in various Zen and engaged Buddhist contexts since uh, we started a book together, which I hope we will get back to and uh, finish. Um, So there's a lot more to say about Alan. Uh, Alan's an accomplished musician, uh, as well as a Zen teacher. Um, He's more recently put out, as far as I know, two CDs, Everything is Broken, and The Wooden Man, which some of you will recognize as a reference to the Jewel Marisamani. And I, had a, I was listening to some of that last night, Alan, and really, it's, still, it's wonderful stuff. So I recommend both of those CDs. Um, so, um, uh, oh, Alan's also got a book called, at least one book called The Bodhisattva Embrace, a collection of his writings. Um, very worth looking at. Um, And I have to say that Alan, of all the American Zen teachers, as far as I know, Alan has the greatest, uh, one of the greatest international presences for a good while now. Uh, And still, um, well, Alan was executive director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and has long been a leader in engaged Buddhist practice and activism. He also was the president of Soto Zen Buddhist Association, But aside from that, uh, maybe less known, he visited the uh, uh, Dalit Buddhist Indian communities for numbers of years and helped uh, support them very much. He's also been very involved in Burma, both with Burmese monks and more recently with the uh, Rohingya uh, Muslim minority who are uh, in danger of genocide at this point. And Alan's still very involved. Well, Alan's also taught in Europe and all around this country, but um, and in Japan. uh, But um, especially he has this uh, presence in South Asia and his current uh, activity involves includes the Clearview Project, which is supporting and helping uh, many, many people in South, many Buddhists in South Asia. So uh, I, I, I recommend you checking out the Clearview Project. So um, I could keep, I could say more, but uh, I'm just so happy to have you with us, Alan. So thank you.
3: Thanks so much, Tygen. Um, this is, a, uh, yes, an old friend and uh, fellow traveler. Um, I'm really happy to be with you this morning in chicago uh and it's a it's actually a really nice crisp day here in berkeley so we just passed the hundredth day memorial for my teacher uh akuryu sojin uh and so i'm just i'm noting that and i am cogniz- cognizant of the fact that his dharma brother uh all disco is, is here. And also, Taigen's teacher, uh, Tenshin Roshi was one of Sochan's Dharma brothers. And so, uh, this is all family. Uh, And uh, I think in the future, I will be speaking more about Sojin Roshi, but, uh, today the topic is really what does liberation look like here? And as I start, I just want to, I want to share screen and remember those who have been, uh, whose lives have been taken by police and other kinds of violence, uh, I think, I think you can see that, uh, it's not exactly up to date, but we, we remember George Floyd. We remember Dante Wright in, uh, Minnesota, 20 years old, was killed, uh, about a week ago. We remember Adam Toledo, uh, 13 years old, who was shot down in Chicago. And maybe some of you were at the memorials that happened in the last day or so. Uh, And there's so many other names and people. They're not just names, they're people. And each person is connected to their families and their communities. And we also remember those uh, Asian and Asian Americans who were Shot and others who were shot down uh, in a spa in Atlanta. Uh, So the fear of violence, I think it pervades the African American community, it pervades the Asian and Asian American community, and it affects us all. And I think just in the simplest Simplest framework. Liberation means. Being free from this violence. That's where I think it has. That's where it has to start. So I've borrowed the title. From a. uh, Event that. uh, A dialogue that uh Io Yotunde and I had last night at San Francisco Zen Center. It was a very it was really lively and uh it went deep and we had some really good and hard questions presented to us. Uh but I don't have Io to lean on here today. So uh I'm going to uh think about I want to start by saying something about uh, the whole context of the liberative process or liberative, liberative territories of of Buddhism, and this kind of gives you a framework. This is something that I found uh, in uh, a piece by. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who we know as an extraordinary translator and scholar of of early Buddhism, and also uh, a man of his time, uh, his time and place. So after decades in Sri Lanka, uh, doing strict practice and translating, he's returned to the United States, and uh, he's become more clearly a voice for the liberative aspects of Buddhism, not just on a spiritual plane, but uh, in the world itself. So I wanted to read you a short paragraph by him. Uh, He says, as I now look at our situation, I distinguish three major domains in which human life participates. One I call the transcendent domain, which is the sphere of aspiration for classical contemplative spirituality. Uh, So that is, uh, you know, what we have long and often thought of as the territory of Buddhist enlightenment,
4: if you will, uh, as a, a spiritual Uh, as a spiritual event that marks the end of suffering. The second is the social domain,
3: which includes our interpersonal relations, as well as our political, social, and economic institutions. And the third is the natural domain, which includes our physical bodies, and other sentient beings, and the natural environment. He says, from my present perspective, a spirituality that privileges the transcendent and devalues the social and natural domains, or sees them at best as stepping stones to realization,
4: is inadequate to our current needs. Such an orientation has led to a sharp division of
3: duties that puts our future at risk. You know, so in a sense, this is a response to
4: the question which comes up frequently uh, when we do are doing social, political, anti-racist work. You know, people
3: there are people who will challenge and say, this is not Buddhism. And I think this is a response from Bodhi that it in fact is Buddhism as we are looking at it today.
4: Buddhism is not some static collection of texts and doctrines that were laid down uh, 2000 or so years ago. It's a living practice. And it lives in us. And we bring to it all that we are all that we carry with us in our education. In our moral and uh, ethical ethical training, in our stories and myths, uh, perhaps in our genes, and this is something that, to my mind,
3: Buddhism has done from the beginning, moving from North India to South. Then and also moving north into uh, China and Tibet, and then eastward to Korea and Japan, and to the other nations of of Asia, and across the ocean to the United States, and everywhere
4: that it went, it very skillfully
3: integrated the values of the cultures that it was landing in.
4: So what I'd like to say about liberation is that it's not some psycho-spiritual experience. That may be part of it. But rather than, as Bhikkhu Bodhi puts it,
3: uh, these other domains are stepping stones to realization, you might flip that, you might turn that on its head and say that the meditative experiences we have that are insight into Uh, the
4: wholeness or the oneness of our world, they are stepping stones to what I would call liberation, which is uh, enlightened activity. And we can look at, you know, the, if we look at the Four Noble Truths, you have the first truth which is
3: the truth of suffering that that our lives are marked by suffering as long as we have bodies as long as we're in this samsaric world and that there is cause of suffering is the second truth or there are causes and uh we can frame that in in various ways uh the way that okay, I li- often like to think about it that uh that I got from my wife, Lori is
4: offering is, is that we suffer because we want things to be different from how they are. Uh, that's a very simple framing of it.
3: The third noble truth is the truth is, is the recognition that there is liberation. And the fourth noble
4: truth is, is the, Eightfold Path, the path to liberation. And what came to me uh, a few days ago uh, is that um, that can be flipped
3: on its head as well. And we have a context for doing that. Which is really, which is familiar to, I'm sure anybody who's studied with Taigen, you know, uh, you, you study,
4: you probably study a lot of Dogen, right? Dogen is not unfamiliar to you. And what's unique about our Soto practice, uh, at least
3: the way Dogen framed it. I don't think it's actually so, I think it's it's common to all of Zen, but Dogen articulated it uh, differently. Uh, he stood this process on its head and talked about uh, practice enlightenment or practice realization. Is that familiar to some
4: of you? Right. So very simply put, uh, we don't practice in order to become enlightened. We practice to express our enlightenment. And the practice itself is the activity.
3: This is enlightened activity. The practice is enlightened activity.
4: So look at the Four Noble Truths. Um, it's totally parallel. I never, this just came to me a couple of days ago, uh, that theoretically the goal is the third noble truth. Uh, and the fourth noble truth is how we get there.
3: But actually it's exact, this is exactly what Dogen is talking
4: about. That, um, we don't practice the Eightfold Path in order to become enlightened.
3: We practice the Eightfold Path as the expression of our
4: enlightened nature. Is that logical? Now, like all dharmic systems, uh, all dharmic systems have a uh,
3: i'm not even sure how to how to how to shape this but these dharmic systems the eightfold path is the practice of an enlightened person the paramitas are a practice of the fully realized bodhisattva and so forth with other systems the Uh, the factors of enlightenment, the, the doors of liberation and so forth. Uh, at the same time, they are practices
4: by which they are practices by which we, uh, cultivate our, our Buddha reality, our Bodhisattva nature.
3: It's, it's the way we, they, for a for a Buddha, the Eightfold path is not something she has to think about for me, I have to think about it because I'm on the path i'm not necessarily i haven't arrived yet as far as as far as I can see so we have this this subtle interchange
4: between uh, the practice. And the manifestation. So. What does liberation look like? And I've probably spoken of this before. Um, for you. I really am so moved and shaped by uh the the teachings of dr b r ambedkar in india i wanted to read you
3: no i don't have it here anyway uh what
4: oh here it is Actually, what Dr. Ambedkar said was that in his mind, the essence of Buddhism was liberty, equality, fraternity. And I think that you can map that as well. Onto the three treasures. So liberty. The Buddha is free. The Buddha is a liberated being. And that liberty has.
3: Two dimensions. And it's interesting because it has is two dimensions in certainly in Western political philosophy. But it also has two dimensions in. In Buddhist commentary it has a positive dimension and a negative dimension.
4: The positive dimension is uh freedom to do things. Freedom to act,
3: freedom to manifest fully, freedom to express yourself.
4: Uh The negative aspect is freedom from. Freedom from oppression. Freedom
3: from police murder. Freedom from white supremacy terror.
4: Freedom from uh, the bullets of military dictatorship in Myanmar. Freedom from religious hatred. And we have those two for for the buddha
3: the positive freedom was the freedom to be able to access the truth of things
4: moment by moment and the freedom from was freedom from greed hatred and delusion so liberty and the Buddha jewel have some resonance. The second of Dr. Ambedkar's points was equality. This is also resonant with the Dharma. In the context of the Dharma, you have uh, the great mirror wisdom which reflects everything equally. The great mirror wisdom does not distinguish and choose or somehow mechanically reflect one thing and not another.
3: It is, it reflects everything that appears before it.
4: And everything in that sense is equal. Every person in their primary valence as a being is equal. That doesn't
3: mean we have the same abilities or talents or
4: even appearance, but it means that We have we need to be cared for by each other as something of value,
3: cared for equally as we would as we would value ourselves um, and this is actually you find this in uh, in one of the early suttas uh, and I'm not
4: remembering the name right now
3: where the Buddha
4: was asked about who is a Brahmin? In other words, who's up there, uh, more
3: of of greater worth than others. And he goes
4: through the entire world and distinguishes uh, how each kind of being, each kind is determined
3: by its birth and its characteristics, and he ends by saying, "Among humans, there are no differences
4: that are of any significance, irrespective of their caste, their gender, uh, their color, their age.
3: That everyone has everyone has the same origin and is." constructed uh, of the same uh, aggregates and parts that work together
4: in the same way. And so equality, to me, is the essence of the Dharma. And finally, we have fraternity, which is
3: the easiest one to see the resonance with because
4: Sangha and fraternity are certainly parallel ideas so liberation depends on what liberation looks like is the manifestation of those three principles whether you look them
3: as look at them as buddha dharma sangha or you look at them as
4: uh, liberty, equality, fraternity. And it's also interesting to note that, at least looking at
3: them as liberty and equality and fraternity, um,
4: there is a creative tension between liberty and equality in our individual in our individualistic society where the, the ideology of individualism is so, uh, so finely tuned. Uh, it's a very finely tuned delusion. uh, we're told or we're given to think that liberty means the opportunity or the agency to do whatever I want. If I have enough money, I can spend it and do what I want. Uh, If that
3: means despoiling the world, well, that's my freedom to do that. If it means, you know, uh, being able to light up a cigarette wherever I want, that's my freedom. If it means not wearing a mask, that's my freedom and obviously that's intention that's
4: in a tension with equality so if if one's freedom means hazard and the diminution. Of others, then you you have a problem, right? And in fact, if that's the case, and you have that problem, you are not going to have fraternity. So sangha or fraternity is contingent on liberty, and equality, or Buddha and dharma but really all three of these are the jewels
3: and it works and our our liberation can work from either end
4: our liberation can work from really investigating ourselves each of each of us looking at ourselves very deeply and having insight into our Oneness, or it can mean practicing in the social realm, practicing with people, practicing in community, and understanding how that activity. Is expressive of our individual uh, Buddha nature. So we can work from either direction. We can work from
3: uh, from both directions at once. There's not a there's not a
4: uh, an instruction manual in this direction. So. There's an image uh, that that I.O. spoke
3: of uh, that that I like a lot, and was
4: was new to me. Uh, in the uh, among the Akan people in what is now called Ghana, they have a figure called the Senkofa bird. I don't know if anyone has ever seen that image. It's commonly depicted as a, a bird that is flying forward with its head turned so that one eye is looking forward and the other eye is looking back. And sometimes it is rendered with a uh, uh, an egg being held in its mouth which represents a future that contains the present and the past. The Sankofa. There's there's some words that are often attached to this image,
3: uh, and the literal meaning of I'm not going to uh, attempt to pronounce them. Uh, the literal meaning of of the words is it is
4: not forbidden to go back and forget and uh, to go back and fetch what you forgot. So this is, you know, you could say this is right. Mindfulness, right. Mindfulness is really right. Remembering. And liberation includes remembering all kinds of things about our individual past, about our uh, culture's past, our nation's past. And I think that what's really difficult in this country, we have a country that is just uh, terribly divided now. And in a sense, it's a battle over views of our history. And our history is, you know, the history of this country. the history of this country is really painful to remember and not pleasant and it's rooted in uh, at least two waves of genocide and that's just the way it is we want to we're often taught to look at it through this
3: glorious lens of democratic principles. And
4: to some extent that's there. And at the same time, it's covering over history. And this is not just something that is uh, unique to our country. It exists in other places and other times. But if we wish to be whole. As. My teacher. Taught again and again. In this practice we include everything. In Zazen you include everything. That. The implication also is that in our life, in the world, we include everything. We don't say this is too ugly. Uh, We might have realistic questions about how to reckon with this. We also may not have the capacity at any given moment to really incorporate it or to know which way to move. We have Zazen to encounter ourselves and the form of our practice, even here on Zoom, is to sit down together to share that intention and do it together, side by side uh, with with a kind of tacit understanding that uh, we cannot do it alone. We cannot transform
3: the world alone. We depend on each other, and this is what the what the Buddha did, which
4: was really radical. Was uh, on the one hand, he brought forth a kind of radical individualism, whereby he welcomed
3: anyone into sangha. Uh, women, men, people of all castes and colors—they were welcome to join the sangha, and they were well, and they were
4: valued according to their fundamental human nature, and then used according
3: to their uh, abilities. And this is very different than what was the. The dominant reality in his place and time, which was completely socially determined
4: that what you did in the world was determined by your gender, your caste, your
3: father's occupation, and so forth uh this what he said was no, it doesn't have to be that way. Each person
4: has each one has his or her own light. But that light is of equal value.
3: So he, it is a radical individualism, but he did it within the context of creating a community. So he was balancing, balancing these elements. And this is something that we can do. This is something, this is what we're trying to do
4: in Sangha. And this is what hopefully with greater difficulty, we will, we are trying to do in our, in our larger society. So that's, that's a rough sketch of my vision of what is
3: liberation. Uh, It's something that we do together. And each of us is completely responsible. It's like, what somebody once told me about playing in a in, a, in an acoustic band is that well, we don't have a drummer in a in the kind of music that i play so everybody is responsible for
4: keeping the beat
3: everybody is responsible individually and everyone is responsive collectively to all the other to the other players and so it's just that same kind of dynamic that i'm talking with talking about, and that is
4: that's how I see liberation and how we widen our sangha, how we learn from other people is part of it, not how we teach them, but how we learn
3: so if it's okay, I think I'm going to stop there and uh leave space for some questions
2: and comments? Thank you so much, Alan. Yes, we have time for comments, questions, responses. Uh, For those of you who are not visible on the screen and we have a couple of screens, you can go to the uh, participants on the bottom and uh, at the bottom of that, raise hand. uh, You can click on that. But also, for those of you we can see, Please just feel to raise feel free to raise your hand, uh, uh, and uh, have responses or comments to Alan and uh, you and David Ray. Would you help me uh, spot people who have who are uh, ready to ask questions? So please um, feel free. Um, we have this opportunity to um, to talk together with Abbott, Alan Sanaki and. Um, uh, the, all of the all of the issues that uh, he raised about what is liberation and how do we express Buddha and Dharma and Sangha together. So please feel free. Is oh, Paul okay Paul please go thank you, go ahead.
5: you're muted, Paul.
6: I was just bowing so far, so that was not a problem <laughs> um thank you very much for your talk i i I've known you for a long time, and I've always enjoyed your company and and your music and uh, um uh, anyway, that's a, a very positive long history, um, <clears throat> but recently there's been the idea that the fear of death is the leading cause of human of human attachment to various different very they, the people attachment to various different ideolo- ideological uh, ways of looking at the world and, and as a driving force, and that the the Buddhist practice and the third noble truth is is dealing with 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 our death. Uh, do you feel that there is some relevance to that? Thank you. Yeah, I mean,
3: I I do. I think that that's that's. Tr- I think it's true on a sort of organic biological uh, level, and I think that we're hardwired to to kind of protect ourselves from that what what i really resonate with is the perspective of uh our friend david loy who talks about lack uh and to me the way he speaks to to when he says lack it's it's like the The perception that there is something missing in each of us in me and uh one of them one of the things that's missing is permanence uh so that that so death to me is included in this sense of lack the other you know he goes into it in great
4: detail uh as uh also as a perception that
3: i am not real you know i keep looking for what's real and i can't get at it and life is is life and death are part of that so uh that's really compelling to me and what he does uh there's a book of his called a buddhist history of the west i think And basically, what he, what he's, uh, putting forward is that the entire process of civilization is a project to ward off this sense of lack or this hole in the middle of us or death. So, uh,
4: yeah, I think that, I think that's quite, that's quite relevant. And it's, it's just interesting because, we had this pretty vivid experience
3: of uh of sojin Roshi's death, and you know he was really functional, highly functional, and not really suffering much until
4: i don't know a month or two at most, and then you know but he didn't he didn't see he didn't seem to resist his death he seemed okay with it uh and which is not to say he wasn't in pain or he didn't
3: express express that or uh he expressed some distress but i don't think it was it was with death
4: itself and that was a powerful experience so thank you yeah i think that's one of the that's right there in
3: you know very prominent in whatever the mix might be and it might be
4: definitional one were you
3: waving your hand or... Juan
4: Pablo?
0: Yeah, thank you, Alan and Teigen, uh, for the space. Um, something that came to my mind is karma. And uh, how do you understand karma? Because uh, for me, it's very difficult when you think about how to bring Buddhism to a political situation or how to bring some issues of Buddhism to the ecological situation to integrate karma in our analysis or our perspective. And so for me, karma meaning past lives. You know? So the traditional way of looking at karma. So I want to know, how do you see it?
4: Um. The way I see karma, which is not exactly precise, is even if we're te- speaking of past lives, if they exist,
3: and I, all I can say about that essentially is
4: I don't remember. Uh, but, uh, buddhist idea the buddhist principle of karma the to me the the most important point of it is if this is a karmic result how will i respond and the the gift of buddhism is
3: That you have a way to respond. You respond to karma with vow.
4: And this is, you know, our teachers made a very, a very clear statement that ordinary people slash deluded people are pushed around by their karma. And bodhisattvas live by vow. The vow to me is including the reality of karma, and then moving forward in a way to transform it.
3: And so our social and political actions are hopefully transformative To some degree, it depends on the intention and to some degree on the impact because it's it's true that our best intended activities can not have a positive, can have a negative effect. Uh, And then we begin again. But uh, karma
4: is intentional. Activity,
3: so I, that's that's how I see it. And also, I, I think that I was trained more, particularly in the in the Zen
4: school, uh, to think of uh,
3: karma and rebirth as momentary rebirth as rebirth moment by moment, according to the states of mind. Uh, and you know, you can see this in a moment if you're driving on the highway and somebody cuts you off all of a sudden, you know, you are, you are reborn in, uh, as a fighting demon, you know, and, uh, The idea is not to, not to, you, you can transform that through practice, but when that demon arises, then your responsibility is to take care of it so it doesn't run amok. Does that, does that help? Yeah, yeah,
0: but. The question was because I, I I also read something from Bhikkhu Bodhi and he's very very much um, into defending Buddhism or at, at least the article I, I I read and 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 warning this idea of Buddhism without past lives or something like that and for me it's very difficult to um, relate that. To, to a political situation, because one of the principles in, in, in every political analysis is, the, is that this social and political situation is not from past life, it's from what we did, of course, is we have to go back to understand the political situation, but not in some, I don't know, spiritual realm that came to us or whatever. So that was my my, my question about.
3: Well, I go back to the Kalama Sutta. Uh, that actually, Bhikkhu Bodhi also speaks of. It's like you have to figure out what makes sense to you. Uh, he and I have actually we we had a a disagreement on a a passage in his book on uh, the Buddha's uh, social uh social teachings you know there was one past in in the section on karma he included a quotation that said that that everything that happens in your life is an effect of karma and i said i don't buy that and there's other, there are other things in the commentarial section. Uh, there's principles called niyamas, which are other causations that are not volitional. So to say that everything that happens to one is a result of karma uh, is to imply that everything that one experiences is a result of one's volitional action in the past or in a past life. And uh, that's not entirely, that's like blaming the victim. I don't buy it. You know, if you look at something like uh, the history of Bangladesh, uh, which is one of the most densely populated countries in the world. Well, every year, large portions of it get inundated by monsoon. And another large portion of the country uh, at the level of the water table has a large vein of arsenic. So when you dig down to do tube wells, what you get is poisoned water. To say that's karma, to me, is ridiculous. It's geology. You know, so... I wrestle with this and you should wrestle with it too.
2: If I may, Alan, uh, to add to everything you've said, uh, something I've talked about before, that karma is not just personal karma.
4: Right.
2: We have the teaching of non-self. There's also collective karma. And we we are beset by that so much now. and, And as you pointed out in, Uh, our country's history of uh, wiping out indigenous people, of slavery, racism, lynching, um, mass incarceration, that affects all of us. And that's not about personal karma. So we are also, um, you know, we also are affected by collective karma. And and it seems like in a lot of traditional Asian Buddhism, they don't reckon with that, but... Uh, I think we have to include that, and I think that's part of the response to Juan Pablo's question. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Other questions?
2: Yes, uh, Alex Bernstein was next, I think.
7: Thank you, Hosen, uh, uh for the talk. And um, I just wanted to say, you know, given your great responsibilities, I wanted to express gratitude for... Um, how kind you are with your time and uh always coming to appear here at ancient dragon and before uh buddhist peace fellowship and and anyway it's a, a great generosity that is appreciated um my question is actually um you know i i know that you are one of the foremost experts in the west on the situation and uh and Myanmar and and the circumstances faced by the Rohingya in Burma. So um, I know the situation is is fast moving. So um, uh, given your understanding of the situation there, what can we do to be most helpful both to the peaceful protesters who are opposing the junta in Myanmar and into um, and uh, be of help to the displaced Rohingya who are in uh, Bangladesh. Thank you. Well,
3: the, the second is, is a simpler response, which is, um, you are welcome to send donations through me uh, to Clearview Project, and uh, I don't take any administrative charge and it's tax deductible. I have also, I have a very close working re- relationship with perhaps one of the largest INGOs in the world, BRAC, B-R-A-C, and you can donate directly to them for Myanmar relief. And right now the need is great because they, were, they had these terrible fires in, in the camp that, uh, that displaced 50,000 people. Uh, and so they're having to rebuild infrastructure. So that is not in the realm of advocacy. I think that advocacy, in many ways, has been uh, sidetracked uh, by the uh, the coup in in Myanmar. But I think that one of the things that's happening is that uh, two days ago. The Burmese resistance declared a national unity government, uh, government in, exil- in exile, and the principles of that government I can send, I'll send to Taigen, uh, are really good, and they call for you know absolute religious and ethnic tolerance, and so I think that the way to bring an end to the Myanmar to the to the Rohingya crisis is to bring an end to the military dictatorship uh in in Myanmar and the way again there I would encourage you to make donations to Clearview project uh, you can find us on the web and there's a donate page uh, and i've so far i've channeled about $22,000 to the to for humanitarian relief, and also in support of the civil disobedience movement in inside Myanmar. And I've just gotten asked by people in to co sponsor a program which is uh, supporting the monks and nuns who are taking a more visible role as as the weeks and months unfold uh it's very touch and go there though uh there's a uh, real well there's a real question about whether civil war is is in the cards or it's already happening and that's very frightening because uh the military which has a very long tradition and is very well armed. Their only enemy is their own people. Uh, which is just bizarre, you know, uh, so there's all kinds of organizing work going on inside the country and they do, they have the skills and the tools to, uh, to build a new society. Uh, they're not. They're, they're much more highly educated, even than they were in 2007 during the Saffron Revolution. So feel free to be in, in touch with me about that. And also soon, I'm going to be advertising uh, a group of us here are uh, organizing a Burma Spring benefit film festival. That's going to be an online film festival. It's going to have amazing stuff that nobody mm-hmm. has seen. And that'll be in the middle of May. Thank you.
2: Alan, thank you for that. And as Alex said, uh, Alan is one of the foremost uh, people who know about Burma, certainly amongst, amongst American Buddhists. Uh, I, a question, though, follow-up question, Alan. What is your view of the... Role of the current American government in terms of how it is impacting the situation in Burma now?
3: Well, I think that um, it's encouraging. I mean, it's just, politics is so weird and contorted. Uh, All efforts against Burma during the Rohingya crisis were blocked by Mitch McConnell. Uh, and Mitch McConnell blocked that because he's a good friend of Aung San Suu Kyi's. Now that Aung San Suu Kyi is back under house arrest,
4: yes. McConnell
3: is supporting uh, humanitarian and sanctioned efforts. Uh, and so that's become unblocked. And I think that the government's, the U.S. government's policies have been uh have been good. They've been targeted sanctions against the leaders of the coup. The most, the effort that we need to bring to bear on the government is uh, coming from a conference call that we had a couple, last last week. Um, is to ask the State Department to pressure Thailand to allow openings in the border for people who are escaping from oppression over the over the border from Burma into Thailand and uh, we have a lot of lev- we have much more leverage over Thailand than we do over over Myanmar so that's one effort the other effort is uh, to uh, bring pressure on corporations on Western corporations that are doing business in Myanmar. And there still are several large corporations. Uh, Chevron is one. Uh, And so there were there was national demonstrations against Chevron yesterday. And I'll I'll try to forward some information on that.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Send that to me, Alan, and uh, anybody who has questions about it, I can, I can forward it to you. So thank you so much for that. So uh, uh, just, um, again for any general questions about Alan's uh, really helpful presentation about liberation and terms of liberty fraternity equality rooted on the Sangha uh, we have some time if anyone for anyone else who has comments questions responses uh, Eve uh, Prinska, your your hand is up next you
3: Eve, you're you're muted still. I know. <laughs> okay. Ah, you
8: thank you. Thank you very much for the information on Myanmar. That was really appreciated. Thank you. But um I was also struck by your comments on the Sankofa um image. And I have a question that's closer to home for those of us in Chicago. So there's um and um, an artwork based on the Sankofa um, that incorporates within the, there's, you know, the uh, aspects of it that relate to the bird and the bird turning its head. But there's also images incorporated from African-American history and images of people that are in this artwork. And it's, it's in the Burnham Park Wildlife Corridor on the south side of Chicago around 31st Street. And was put there in 2015 um, with um, by some artists from the um, Southside Community Arts Center. Anyway, it, there's a clearing. It's it's in this you know area where it's like forested, and but there's a space to sit. Um, I was just wondering if you had any ideas on what we could do with that. Um, that there, it's supposed to be a gathering place. That's what it's for.
3: And why not go gather?
8: Yeah, to get people there to sit and maybe talk. I'm sitting there.
4: But I would suggest um,
3: I would suggest doing some outreach. Yeah. First, and particularly, I'd suggest speaking with people in nearby African American churches.
8: Mm
3: -hmm. uh this is one of the things you know uh i'm not sure if i talked about this last time but uh big experience for me in the last four or five months at at the Soto Zen buddhist association meeting in october uh io was io yutunde who's been there right she's spoken there can't hear you
2: now. You're muted, Tiger. Sorry. Yes, she spoke here at Ancient Dragon. Also, yes.
3: So, um, Io suggested uh, she recommended that people undertake d- to do Bible study. Mm-hmm. And she was particularly saying, do Bible study. You know, go to an AME church and join their Bible study, and. I thought about that for a month or two and realized that I thought that was a really good idea. Uh, And I went to, but I, you know, every day I walk by a church that's about a block and a half from here, Mm
4: -hmm. uh,
3: which is actually a black evangelical church. Mm -hmm. And I've been to a couple of events there because they're, they're sort of, they're very environmentally aware Mm -hmm. And so I looked and saw they had online Bible study, and uh, so I've been going every week. Uh, and it's 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 a different reality, and it's wonderful, and the people are terrific. Uh, and uh, I will own that I have some trouble with the Gospels but I have a lot of trouble with the Hebrew scriptures too. Uh, But I don't have any trouble with the people. Right. Yeah. And I've been welcomed. uh, And it's a small group. It's only about eight or 10. Mm
8: -hmm.
3: And this has been, this has been really wonderful. So it's not like I am not there to teach them anything.
2: Right.
3: You know, uh, they're vaguely aware that I'm, a Zen priest and they have no idea of what, what that means and they haven't... I just think we're waiting. You know, they'll ask me about it when they're ready to ask me about it, but that's not the point. The point is actually to study the Bible. So yeah. I, I said that just, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it would be wonderful to have a sitting there and also I I guess... Having said that, I recognize that there's a question about whose space it is, and to be very sensitive to that.
1: Yeah,
8: and I mean it's interesting because I think there are openings um, to to do a like cross community uh-huh. gathering there. Um, so um, one of my friends works for the. Field Museum in Chicago, and the Field Museum, um, when you said, whose space is it? So that space was actually put up there as part of a project to encourage ownership of the wildlife corridor and stewardship, I should say more than ownership, of some of the communities that border it, Um, the uh, communities of color on the Um, south side of Chicago, but it was also meant to encourage, you know, gathering across um, community and color lines. So, I mean, the space is actually, like, made for that. So, yeah, I think there are ways we could build on that. And I think, you know, your idea about partnering with churches is a great one. And um, yeah, I, I certainly. The
4: other, the other thing,
3: the, the other partnering um, that makes sense to me is to look and see what kinds of interfaith bodies you have in that area or in Chicago, mm-hmm. and do it through something like that.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank anyone- you very much. Yes. Other, other, que- any other comments, questions, responses? We do have some time. And I think uh, we can explore as a Sangha doing some of the things that you're talking about in terms of, I mean, I think we've had, some of us have done some of that, but uh, right now in the current situation to look at, uh, outreach and interaction with uh, black communities and uh, the next communities and and, and just interfaith uh, work. So that's uh,
3: You know, I went to, just to say I went to an incredible event. I don't know if this is happening in Chicago. Um, there's a movement called Tiny Houses.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, And uh, there's a there's a sort of settlement of tiny houses uh, out by sort of in the shadow of the Colosseum. Paul might know that that area. It's kind of a no man's land, Uh, and they were given a lot. And uh, they've built about 30 really lovely, portable, tiny houses uh, for youth. And then young people are vetted, who are homeless, are vetted and move into this. And and the the wider community, the wider interfaith community has uh, elaborately... Painted and decorated, these houses—they are just beautiful—and also surrounded the uh, the property with uh, with hand painted planks that that create a fence. And it was a remarkable. The opening was a remarkable event. The mayor of Oakland, the mayor of Berkeley, were there. Uh, all kinds of figures. The houses are meticulously assembled they're really it's like i'd like to live in one of these you know uh and they have a common kitchen area and a common meeting room area in in sort of yurt structures uh it's a really it's an amazing phenomenon and it's open to you know all it's really being built by congregations uh and with the with the uh the cooperation of the city uh so i'm not telling you this is something to do but if it's if there is something there uh projects like this uh are wonderful and necessary there's so many homeless people
4: paul you know what paul You
3: go. Yes,
6: I think this is one of the most exciting things that's happening right now. A homelessness is such a major part. I mean, we we're concerned about people in in Burman and but uh, being homeless, but we, we have them right here under right here, yeah, right here at our next door to us. And uh, this is the, one of the most exciting things that I've seen written in the last last year for sure. Where these groups groups are coming together and they they finally. They finally passed a law, or they, they interpreted the law, saying that you cannot be shuffled along and evicted from your tent, you know, from your public space, and they're setting up these communities that are self governing communities that that um, um, that have their own internal their own internal organizations take care of their own internal problems, and uh, and tiny based around tiny houses. And it's 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 quite wonderful. It, it may it may take over. It maybe people may be interested in escaping the the bourgeois corporate world of America and, and moving into such these communities. This may become the the movement of the future. I'm I'm, I'm quite excited by it.
3: Yeah, and the the young people who were presenting who were, who have moved in in the last number of months, they're just really impressive. And it was really impressive how they had. They'd gotten their lives together, lives that had been just such a struggle. So, um, you know, often what I think is we get bogged down in talking. Uh, And when I say that enlightenment is an activity, uh, I don't just mean the activity of talking. So I I really, uh, we're about to have a board meeting, which I need to go to. And there's one of the things I want to do is to pitch our participation as BCC in in this project, so uh, I just share it with you as kind of perhaps a catalyst.
2: Thank you, Alan. I um, we're, we're having a board meeting later today too here, and I'll I'll bring up some of this. But I, I don't. I've heard of this tiny house movement, but I don't know if it's happening in Chicago. Uh, does anyone know Ed Donley? Do you know about that or Yozan?
5: Yes, thank you. Um, I don't know of anything going on along those lines right now. I do know uh, that historically uh, the city government, the municipal government of Chicago has been extremely unfriendly to such projects. And probably 10 or 12 years ago, there was uh, something that sounds quite similar happening where I think they – Some people got together and built maybe 15 or 20 um, tiny houses on unused land, and they lasted, I think, about a month before the city went in and raised them. So um, so just be aware that, uh, you know, something like that. Well, you know, things have changed in Chicago. We have a very different administration now. But um, if such a project gets underway, um, anticipate a little headwind
2: well it's certainly something we could support if it's happening if anyone knows anything more about uh, current expressions of that here uh, anyway um uh, so alan if you if you have to leave uh, uh well,
3: david just raised his hand maybe the last question david uh
7: thank you thank you so much alan well it's uh, I, I lowered my hand because I kind of felt like the moment passed.
3: That David, it David Weiner did, but go ahead, David Ray. Oh
7: no, no, no! Uh, never, now I'm now I'm confused. Maybe David Weiner has a pressing question. David Weiner, go ahead. Um,
5: just because I do business with them and I am involved with them, uh, just a suggestion: uh, you might we might want to contact their two Habitat for Humanity. Uh, entities in a Chicago area, one for Chicago itself and one for uh, the the greater suburbs, and that's called uh, Chicagoland Habitat. Uh, And they have deep pockets with all the corporations like Whirlpool who donate all the electrical uh, appliances in the homes and actually donate it. People don't pay for it. And this might be something that maybe there could be a bridge with uh, Habitat to uh, to do that. It's just a suggestion.
2: That's worth exploring and checking out. Thank you. Uh, uh, Alan, do you have any kind of last words for us uh, uh, after this discussion and just uh, in terms of your really fine talk?
3: I don't know that I have any last words except that I really – I appreciate this Sangha and uh the friendships that I have here and that's the basis, that's the fraternity basis, and liberty and equality are values that we that I believe we share. So thank you very much and feel free to call on me with any questions.
2: Thank you so much, Rosanna. Uh, so we'll have our uh, closing chant now. Shingyu,
4: Yu, if you would uh, put, put that up and uh, we can join in that. Okay, so we'll first chant the repentance verse and then the metta sutta.
1: All my ancient twisted karma. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, Near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things. suffusing so love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours. Let one practice the way with gratitude, not not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all wicked beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, Our First Ancestor in Japan, Great Teacher Ehe Dogen Our First Ancestor in America, Great Teacher Shogaku The Perfect Wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, And to peace pervading for all peoples of the world Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, maha prajna paramita.